Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. I watched a really good... um, Good movie last night. What, what was it? It was called um, The Great Debaters with Denzel Washington. 2014, I think, or 13. I never heard of it. I'd never heard of it either, but um, at one of, the, uh, one of my son's uh, graduation parties, I was talking to this woman, and she was a huge Denzel Washington fan. She's like, have you seen The Great Debaters? I was like, no, I haven't seen it. And uh, it's actually a super interesting story of, um, based in the 30s of a debate team in a very small... Texas school mm-hmm. called Wiley College, Wiley College. I don't know if you're familiar with it, seeing as how you're from Texas. <laughs> right. But um, but uh, they basically uh, build this debate team. They have this like very charismatic professor mm-hmm. as Denzel Washington role. He's you could tell the roles he's always attracted to are like the r- put a ragtag team of people together to do the impossible. Well, your favorite film. That's what I mean. And, and others, too. But um, he... So basically, this professor creates this team in 1935 of these, you know, people from all walks of life. They're all African-American, right? Um, debaters. And then he starts competing with other of what at the time was called the Negro schools, right? And um, he, they're, they're, they're beating them. And it's like old school debating. We're not talking about like, you know, like, uh, you know, CNN or Fox News debating. This is like, there's there's analysis, there's theory, there's the whole rapport of how you make the case and blah, 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 and retort and back and forth is very dignified. Mm-hmm. And they like just beat everybody down, like in, in their section. And then suddenly their big break comes when Harvard agrees, they're the, they're the, the, the national debate champion, agrees to, um, to, take to, them on. to take them on. I won't let you. I won't let you know what happens, but uh, <laughs> you me, can you can imagine guess. since it's. Uh, By the way, speaking of debate, did you hear that um, uh, Crystal and Sagar are leaving the Hill? Oh, really? Oh, actually, not are leaving. Crystal have, Ball. Yeah, have left. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, too, really got too big for it. Go do their own thing, or is that what they're doing, or what? what well, happened? it's actually. I saw this really uh, this interview where they like he was Sagar on his on Twitter. He put he put this video up of of. Um, like a podcast kind of thing that they did, mm-hmm. and some of those guys they end up showing up as guests in um in Rising right in the in the show, so it won't be their, their own show, but they talk about some of it, and it, you know, it's not entirely clear to me as to why they're leaving. Part of it though does feel like they don't feel like the being the part of Rising is is actually lets them do the kinds of journalism and storytelling they want to do, mm. because the Rising is still too driven by trying to just trying to get bigger. 
Yeah. You know, one of the things I remember bringing up to you a while back is while they Bigger always talk in terms of audience. Yeah. 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 Um, remember I mentioned to you is like the thing I found always a little hilarious about Rising is they always talk about how misleading, you know, mainstream media is and all these headlines. And then you look at every single one of their tiles and it's like, I know. it looks like death is happening. Let, like yeah. <laughs> that, you need to okay. click on this. Otherwise you will die in the next five seconds. Like, and I think frankly, apparently uh, that message didn't get to the social media manager. Well, but I, but I think that is, that's actually part of the problem. And I think that's what he's speaking to is they were so driven by everything had to get mass audience, even within a YouTube ecosystem that they weren't able to talk about things that they want to talk about. Slave to the and algorithm. They, and they got, you know, they both bounced, which is really interesting. I think it's going to, I saw a new episode with the new, I don't know if the, the new host or maybe the temporary ones. It's terrible. 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 Yeah. yeah, they're good. I mean, they're very charismatic, both of them. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a, I think, I think, it's think a he's, I think he's a lot less interesting than, than Crystal. Oh, she's my, yeah, I think she carries it. But but look, but I think that the thing with him though, what I do like is I do I do think he is very um quick to call out, you know, the the Republican side of the of the equation. Mm-hmm. So he's I think he's good about not like not 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 basically sort of sort of cherry picking and really going after Every, everything and everyone, right. you know? Um, so I think that's that's Well, they're both kind of populists, and so they agree on some stuff. Uh, yeah. Interesting. By the way, just going back really quickly to um, this uh, Wiley College thing, it was super well acted. Denzel Washington directed it. It was super incredibly acted. And I was thinking, I never heard of this. I'm a fan of Denzel Washington. I never heard of it. And you think about, like, the marketing and all the decisions and everything that goes into these different films, and mm-hmm. that some of them just get deprioritized because of all the, all the things that some we probably Some are passion know. projects. It's a, yeah, it's like a passion project, but mm-hmm. it was super good. And I just thought, like, yeah, double the acting, you know, twice the, the, the passion for probably, you know, one-tenth the budget or whatever sure. is, is what, what this one was, but it happens. Um, hundredth, the centen- is that Centennial? Is that what you say? Once yeah, hundred, yeah. the centennial of the Tulsa massacre is what we're talking about in our deep dive. Yeah. So, um, is that what is that what it's called? The the Tulsa massacre. Yeah, Tulsa race race massacre. Race massacre. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, they also refer to it as Black Wall Street, right? Is it? Actually, it's actually really interesting. Even the name of it, the the fact that it's called the race massacre, they didn't actually change. They didn't actually start getting called that till 2018. Mm. For a, for a long time, it was called the Tulsa race riots. Which has a very specific connotation, um, and we'll get into the why. But it actually really affected people's ability to rebuild because it was called the race riot. As a matter of fact, because it was it was considered a race riot, and that's what it was called by the city, it meant that most of the of the black community that lost their homes, businesses were not able to file insurance claims, um, like fire insurance claims or any of that, because it was considered a race riot, which falls outside of what those insurance claims would actually cover. Interesting. So it was re- yeah, it was actually really terrible that that happened. Uh, and it was is obviously you know one of a you know a thousand things that that were wrong with this whole event. But Definitely really big in the news this week, right? I mean, President Biden just did a whole speech on it. Yeah, and, I, I didn't uh, actually see that one. Neither did I. He, he talked about it. Um, I know it came out. Well, I mean, because on Monday it was to your point, it was you know mark the hundred year anniversary um, of this massacre, right? So yeah, so I think it was worthwhile for us to talk about this a little mm-hmm. bit. I think to me the interesting thing about the more I learn about the story is kind of learning how quickly it almost got completely forgotten. And all the factors that sort of like played a role in 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 this part of the history getting you know partially erased, and it sort of took a lot of effort to try and get it back. So that to me was, was in part of, of course of what happened, but also the interesting thing is 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 how the role that has played in kind of in our collective 
history and how quickly it could actually, or how little it actually yeah. takes for something as big as this to get to get almost erased. Well, also how interesting that it's come back into your consciousness lately. Oh yeah, the how, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So that was. Um, so why don't we talk about it? So on um, let's I guess first talk a little bit about the history of it, right? So on May thirty first of nineteen twenty one, so hundred years ago. Uh, a white mob attacked Greenwood, which is this area uh, of Tulsa, which was predominantly a black, a black area, a black community, right? Which um, now makes sense to me, since I didn't have the 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 uh, the benefit of all the details of the story. Why one of the big uh, black uh, uh, fintech uh, recent startups is called Greenwood? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that makes that, sense. That makes sense now. Okay. That does. Um, well, Saturday is really in a matter of hours. Thirty-five city blocks. Of this community were burned down, uh, up to a, up to three hundred people were killed. By the way, in the count, no one really knows what the count what the count actually is, in part because you know they didn't keep a count of it. And even many people that were killed were put into un, you know unnamed graves, almost mass graves rather that were thrown in thrown in there. So no one really knows. And like up to a thousand homes, businesses were looted and set on fire. Do you ever stop and think about the like how fast or or how much we're speeding up in terms of technology? That to look back a hundred years because it's a hundred years, but it's technologically you could almost be looking back like a thousand years. You know what I mean? In terms of the lack of the internet, the lack of some of these these kind of forensic process that we take for granted. It's you can't even tell who was killed in it. I mean, that's it, amazing. It's to me. interesting that you think of a hundred years being a long time ago. But there's people that are alive right now that were alive then. I was I was listening to this interview and they had this this woman who's 107 years old, I think 106, something like that, right? Who was alive then? She was a little kid. She was six years old, basically. Ooh. You know, I think it's I think it's 106. And it's um so in some in many ways, to your point, it's it's a long, long time ago. You can think from a technology standpoint how much things have evolved. But it's also not that long ago. Still, that's still one generation well, too. Like yeah. it's, it's like it's it's such an interesting dynamic. I think from the from that standpoint. Yeah, it feels like it's a long time ago. Well, it is from a from a, the standpoint of the things that we now live with. But yeah, in in pure time chronologically, right? You're still uh, you know you're able to touch someone who actually went through it, and if not right. them, directly their kids. Directly you know what I mean? their kids. That's yeah. right. So it's one generation removed, really. Um, now this all started when a 19 year old black shoe shiner was accused of assaulting a white woman. Um, which like even that headline, man, like I read that and it's, it's a, it's, I cringe on hearing that headline because it sounds like a bad, uh, synopsis or a bad sort of log line for a, a bad story. Cause it, they almost all feel that they started the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, black man gets accused of doing something to a white woman. Then it turns out not to be the case, which here, once again, it was a case sure. right? charges will actually drop. Yeah. And in part because the woman actually refused to press charges. Right now, one of the, the the pieces that I read actually talked about it. Apparently, he tripped into this elevator. She was an attendee of the of the elevator, and like hit her in the shoulder as he tripped. She got freaked out. The guy ran, called the police, and then she was like, "No, no, no, I don't want to press charges." Didn't matter. Like the wheels were now set in motion. Unbelievable. Right. And by the way, even if it had been intentional, like you didn't do anything stupid at nineteen, eighteen. You know what I mean? It, it's exactly. Like the, the, even the, if it was right, but frankly, by the afternoon, there was already a mob at the courthouse looking to lynch the the, the, the young man on the streets. Right. Now, it turns out that a separate group of black men from Greenwood came to protect them, and there were some scuffles, even some shots fired. And, and that's what really was the, the, the excuse that was needed, right? By, by that night, thousands of white Tulsans uh, had launched an all-out assault on Greenwood with rifles, machine guns, torches, even aerial bombings from private planes. I mean, Sheesh. think about that you know, scene. Um, and even the police were complicit. They actually deputized part of the mob. And some even participated in the attack, right? Mm. So that's sort of the really sad thing about this is the role that the city and the police officer all played in, in creating this, this dynamic. 
Now, that rampage lasted until the next afternoon, leaving about 10,000 black Tolstons homeless and their community burned down. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, burned you know, completely down. And by the way, even the media have played a role uh, in this, in sort of inciting this violence after the, the newspaper, in this case, the white newspaper, right, uh, Tulsa Tribune, ran a front page story entitled Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in the Elevator. Right, which basically accused uh, you know Roland, who was the name of the name of the of the shoe shiner, of stalking, assaulting, and raping this this woman. Which none of them actually none of that none actually of it happened. None of it happened. Yeah. Um, now, th- when you think about all that and, and and all this destruction that happened in the neighborhood, like by the way, now I've I've now heard and read more about this story, and it, it like it turns out I think in part there was this sort of growing resentment of this thriving community in a very segregated you know city, which is the Tulsa. Now I think for the people that for the black community that was there. What they did is they basically created like their own, I don't call it utopia, because utopia has like a, some, could have a positive connotation, but like a very insulated kind of community where mm-hmm. they had everything. They had law offices, theaters, restaurants, you know, dentists, yeah. everything, yeah. everything there. And what they did is whatever income they were being able to get, whether it was from, you know, in some cases, people that are cleaning houses or whatever, working for some of the, you know, the white people that lived in Tulsa, everything was being spent in this area, right? So it became... It its became own like economy, source, its own, yeah. Its own economy. And to some extent, you started seeing people actually become much more successful. You had guys that owned hotels. Yeah. Multiple hotels, as a matter of fact, right? Multiple buildings. So you had people that were pretty successful in this. And, and the sad thing is overnight, all that, you know... All that success, all that wealth just destroyed. Were they investing in other areas outside of Greenwood? Like this That's not Greenwood clear area? to me. I think it, it, from my understanding, it was very insulated to this specific area. Now, I mean, for us to remember, like this is the 1920s. So the KKK in, in Oklahoma was very strong and it was extremely segregated. So to some extent... They were their success was a result, and some you can make, can make a little bit of an argument of the amount of segregation that was there because that had to be very concentrated, right? Um, but and, the backdrop to your point was that there was this community that was thriving, right? And in a way, you know, maybe other people on the other side of the tracks were looking and saying, "Hey, you know what? I'm I've got all I'm right. I'm poor and I'm dejected." And sure, I'm this. for anyone and that is that is that not, was the backdrop. Yeah, that is the backdrop. So I think this definitely felt like it was a, a something that was just looking for. You know, what was going to be that match that literally, in this case, that set the fire? And I think this was enough of an excuse with this accusation that sort of sparked this thing, right? But once again, the most interesting thing about the story, not that that's not interesting, of course, super, that's sad and everything, but it's how quickly, in such a short period of time, it almost got completely forgotten, right? And, and the question mm-hmm. is, but how, right? Well, first of all, a number of factors here. One is the Tulsa officials covered it up, right? They labeled it a riot. So first of all, as mentioned, we were talking about when we started. How many people are dead? Roughly three hundred. We said. Yeah, roughly three hundred. Right. So, so the, the count is not in a clear. town that is not nineteen twenty one. I mean, it was, was three hundred people dead? Ten thousand people homeless. Right. Think about that. Right. Yeah. This whole area, and it's like it's twenty five city blocks. It's not like um or thirty five. I'm sorry, no, I, I lost ten. Thirty five city blocks that were mostly burned down. Wow. The the amount of damage right. in this area was massive, right? Um, but the once again labeled a a, a race riot. Which shifted the blame to the black community, also yeah. then calls for them not to be able to once again file for for insurance claims to to get support. Um, even in the weeks following the massacre, the Tulsa's chief police officer police uh, ordered his officer to go to all the photography studios and confiscate any pictures taken of the carnage. Right? They wanted to like control the narrative, literally, right? Control the narrative. Um, what to me is even worse is the city actually promised to rebuild. Discourage people from fundraising to uh, fundraising from within and or other communities to help rebuild, and then never did. Right, mm. and then for the black community that was there, is they were afraid it was going to happen again. So for them, 
talking about it became a very hush-hush thing within the black community because the people that had done all this damage were walking. No one got arrested. No one got prosecuted. You know, you have police that were involved in the pressure process. So it was living in fear, right, for, for them. And it was really interesting hearing some of the stories of kids of, of, of some of these, you know, that were either really young or hadn't been born yet, you know, within a 10, 20-year period, didn't even realize it ever happened. Wow. That's crazy, It's amazing right? the media was complicit in it to the extent, and, and the officials and everybody else, in kind of tamping it down. And now, oftentimes, media is blamed for doing the opposite, which is like, you know, promoting every kind of well, fringy, yeah. Well, know, they first did, right, to, your, to the point yeah. I was making earlier. They were first, they were part of the problem, but then when it came to actually accountability, they were like, just forget it all, that it actually happened, right? And that's super sad. Now, there is, um, you know, as part of the, one of the pieces I was, I was reading, I think, on CNN, uh, according to Scott Ellsworth, who is a professor of Afro-American and African Studies, mm-hmm. um, I think in Michigan, and he's the author of this book called The Groundbreaking, which is about the Tulsa massacre. He said regarding the cover-up, regarding the cover-up, the massacre was actively covered up in the white community in Tulsa for nearly a half century. Tulsa's two daily white newspapers, they went out of their way for decades not to mention the massacre. Researchers who would try to do work on this as late as the early 1970s had their lives threatened and had their careers threatened, right? And as a matter of fact, that's I was listening to uh, The Daily. They were talking about that today. or well, I guess it must have been yesterday's episode. But they were mentioning um, that this Ashley story didn't really start to come to light till the late 1970s, where a white reporter started digging into this. He brought it to his newspaper in Tulsa. They were like, we're not going to touch that story at all. And then happened to find, um, I forget now the name, the name of, the, of the guy, who ended up becoming a, a, a city councilman. Oh, no, I'm sorry, a state legislator um, who established his own African-American, who established his own publication. Basically, that's how the story story got got some coverage. Was there ever a reason beyond we just don't want to talk about it given as to a rationale why it wouldn't be a good story? In other words, like somebody comes and says, hey, we're not going to touch this with a, you know. I, I think because. Self-interest. Well, I mean, I get there, all that. I'm but, sure there's a lot of self-interest. It's also because it. You know, the more you dig into the story, so much of the blame is pointed right back into the city, into the police, to really the government that was that was there that facilitated this to happen. The reality is, I don't think no one's saying that they're the ones that created the situation, but they facilitated the situation. And so I think it looks it's kind of really thing. bad on a lot of people, and it just makes and it our wasn't lives just more complicated, the when so it happened, it. right? But it's the after, after of how, of how it happened, yeah, right? I, get that. I think that's part of it. I get that there was there was actually a, a 1921 Tulsa race riot commission that was formed um, to investigate this in 1987. Officially released a report in 2001, and once again, if you, if you catch the name at the time, it was still called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2018 where it was relabeled as as actually a race massacre, mm-hmm. right? Um, even, by the way, part of that commission, I think it was in that commission where part of the findings that came out is they gave uh, medals to people that survived the... Of black people that basically survived the the race massacre, right? And people were like, "What the fuck is? What am I gonna do with this goddamn medal?" You know? Yeah, exactly. People were super offended by it. You made it. All of your loved ones yeah. didn't. I got a T-shirt. Yeah, we got. Yeah, yeah exactly. One here's, of those like here's you know, a tchotchke. Yeah, I survived the, the Tulsa race massacre. And all wow. I got was this T-shirt. Right. This, it was this whole, it's, this it's whole story as bad is as surrounded by bad decisions. It, it is. Um, you know. You know. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this there's like there's the psych- sociological dynamic and then there is for me the well i guess they're both sociological but one sociological dynamic is the whole idea of how mobs begin yeah. the whole hive mind thing you talked about 
the spark was this young man who bumped into this woman in the elevator or right. whatever happened. Yeah, whatever happened, yeah. And then that became to began to snowball. Some people come to the courthouse. Those people take a punch or a shot. Then they bring their friends. And this whole thing just starts going and going and going till now people are carpet bombing neighborhoods. And it all yeah. snowballs. And when you look at that hive mind of how people are operating, if you've ever been inside – like an actual mob. I've only seen them, right, Doc, mm-hmm. in document uh, documentaries and that kind of thing. Right, right. But nobody's actually thinking. Nobody's actually, they're just, they're not thinking as individuals. They're responding in this kind of weird groupthink that is right. so bizarre to see. I saw another uh, movie that I saw um, a few days ago. It was a documentary called Mully, M-U-L-L-Y. You have to watch this amazing documentary about this East African, actually he's Kenyan, um, guy who had like basically was like this entrepreneur, had like all the money in Kenya and whatever, and he like basically just gave it all up because he was a guy who came from nothing. He was like mm-hmm. lived in a hut and whatever, gave it all up to help these kids in these huts. It's an incredible movie. But in it, they show actual footage of some of the Kenyan um, riots that happened after a uh, election of one of their yeah, presidents. They, they get pretty bad. All no, it was crazy. I mean, people walking around with like machetes, just like chopping up people, like literally. For sure. And, and no, I'm like, as a matter what fact, the hell are the... you thinking? What and they're it, not. They weren't thinking. Well, yeah, you're right. Because it, 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 it does become this kind of snowball effect. I, I actually, as as you know, like I've, I've visited, you know, Kenya. I've been, I've been there. And one of the years that we were supposed to go, we ended up pushing it back by a year, especially because it was it was close to election time. And it's, things just get completely out of Crazy. Hand. I don't know about recently, but but at least they did a while ago. But my point in bringing it up, not that they're the, they're certainly not the only country or, or we've yeah. done it. We're talking about an example for us right now. But my point is in that hive mind kind of uh, mindset where yeah. something happens and we forget an individual's humanity and start acting out these crazy kind of group things. And it's like a suspension of consciousness. It's a weird thing that happens when you look at it. So I always find those fascinating and trying to dissect so those things don't... Like, what is the trigger that makes those things happen? That's one. And the second one is this whole kind of hermetically sealed community that was thriving, right? Like, mm-hmm. that to me is super interesting part of this it, story. It, it is. You know, what was, but I think it kind of gets into this, this point, right? Because part of the thing what's happening here... It has to be rooted in the fact that there was a resentment against, against this community and the success that it was having sure. in a very challenged, obviously, you know, segregated time. So I'm sure for a lot of people, they, they did not like seeing, you know, these men walking around in suits and, and looking like like you're not supposed to have this, you know, this yeah, kind of lifestyle. you're supposed to be poor. You're supposed to be, yeah. There, there's actually a book that, that was given to me by, by the CEO of Girl Rising that I just started reading called How Change Happens. What's really interesting about that, it talks about Literally that, like the 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 role of groupthink, how it ha- like how it creates the dynamic, the number of factors that it kind of talks about. In some cases, it talks about the fact that you could have, you know, when you have people come into a group that have a a shared identity or something that is sort of similar, right? And whatever position people have, when they come together, instead of when you think about people having different sort of sitting in different positions, instead they of play people coming more towards the middle, yeah, it actually pushes the extreme. And if people already come in with some kind of baseline, it actually raises the level of extremism that actually comes out of the group at, at the end of it, right? The, a sports context a contest being a benign example of that dynamic yeah, right there. Yeah, perfect example, right? The, the other thing that, that they talk about here is that many times what happens is that you're actually tapping into beliefs that people already have in some way or, or, or another, but societal norms 
prevent prevent it from people like really wanting to yeah. like express you're giving it those, oxygen. Right? And if there is a change in that social norm in whatever way, it could have a very dramatic effect on how people then express themselves, right? The change in social norm here is that there was resentment, I'm, I'm guessing here, and it's probably not a wild guess, people had this community. The second that, that someone opened the door is that, hey, we're going to go after them, right? All of a sudden, whatever was holding people yeah. back... And yeah, because now the dam broke. The dam and this broke. is the part where I, I really strongly feel that the role that the city played, that the police played, the moment they started deputizing people, to go and be part of this this mob, then it's like you full almost green light. Whatever yeah. yellow light people may have had, you know, they gone. You almost need those guardrails, and this is an argument for um, you know the importance of, frankly, rules and guidelines and, and and literally guardrails. We use that as a euphemism, guardrail. But the reality of it is, the guardrail is put on there so you don't go off the edge and kill yourself, right? right? And and because you're right, that if you look at these experiments, these instances rather, not experiments through time. Although I am going to mention one experiment, um, you know what happened with uh, in a World War II and around these different events. When you see people behaving in ways that are inhuman, literally like mm-hmm. non-human, it's because some of those things have been eroded away that right. normally that almost like create this aperture. Well, if that's not happening anymore, if that's not if that foundation has now been gone, well, then I can act in this crazy way. The experiment, I forget the name of it, but um, famous sociological experiment where they put a bunch of uh, college students in this kind of fake prison setting. Yeah, yeah. You, I know, you know, know what exactly talking what about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then about. like after like five minutes, for, these people were like called. killing each other or something. It was yeah, insane. Yeah, it, it went, got really extreme really, really quickly. Um, but it is those those sort of change in norms that really impact people's behavior. The, in that book itself... It talked about a study that was done. You know, I'm going to butcher a little bit, but the study was actually very relevant to actually President Trump being, being um, um, becoming president, right? And when it talked about it, it actually asked a questionnaire, um, and it basically brought up this fictional organization that was very anti-immigration, right? Anti-immigrant, and it asked people to basically either vote in support, like what was their likelihood to actually want to support this type of organization by giving money? Like they were saying, like you're going to get a, like a budget and you get a budget to actually donate to this and you could do it anonymously or you could do it publicly. Now, if you do it publicly, the study said that we may actually reach back out to you and ask you about why you did that. And the scenarios that were given to people is like one scenario was like, well, if, if, uh, if president Trump wins, how does that actually change your dynamic? Right. And what they, in and this is before he actually won. And they did it again once he actually won. And what they found is that because of some of the positions that President Trump had taken that very anti-immigrant, when uh, it actually, for people that were, that were told that if he wins, how would that change the position? It actually increased their likelihood to want to donate to this organization, whether or not it was anonymous, right? But still, the majority of people were, were wanting to be anonymous, right? Of course, as, as opposed to if he lost, then... The only people that want to do it, majority will be anonymous. The second that he won, they did it again, and and then it didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter whether it was anonymous or not. The percentage of people that were willing to support this very anti-immigrant organization had actually all gone up. And they talked about this. This is in a context where this you know individual, whether you agree with it or not, just change what the social norm in terms of how people viewed him. And that's what and leadership that does. The, that's open the... up the door for how people view. And like this is the kind of this is going going back to now the Tulsa thing. This is why I do think that the city itself, the the government, like the the role they play, is such a 
play such we a for, massive like we f- yeah we forget impact. how important leadership positions are across yeah. the board in so many things i mean it's like talk about taking it for granted but that actually uh, that that uh, trump example brings it to the to the fore it's called the stanford prison experiment by yeah, the way that's right. the one that that's I, right. I, yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah. looked it up yeah. but um and there was a doc made on it in 2015 as well i do well. remember yeah reading about that but it's, super interesting it's super interesting dynamics um here by the way even it wasn't even until 2000 that this event was even included in the Oklahoma public schools curriculum, right? And has in, and I think it's just entered uh, American history textbook until recent years, right? So for a long time, it wasn't even in the in the conversation. But if you think about it, that a commission wasn't really fully formed to understand what happened until 2001. So that kind of makes sense it's why just, it was. It's, just, it's, it's crazy though, right? It's like, just nuts. And, and and so, by the way, the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum, which you would think this is about the like history of Tulsa. Like you would think that at least in Tulsa, people would be doing this 50, so that was, 80 years ago. So that was done this. founded in the late 1990s, right? Yeah. But didn't even mention anything about the massacre of 2012. When a new executive director actually came in and was like, well, why are we talking about the whole history? By the way, right. I, didn't, I didn't actually look in to see whether this new executive director was black, because I'm sure that would have made a pretty big difference. But I don't know, right? Um, but the saddest thing about the story, and actually, and I put myself directly in this camp, that I think a lot, for a lot of people, including me, really found out about this Tulsa massacre because of an HBO show, Watchmen, right? Which the entire plot of the show centers around around the massacre. I remember seeing when it came out because I just recently watched, like literally a few weeks ago, I just started watching it. Uh, but I remember hearing about it. I'm like, yeah, this fictional thing about that you seen in Watchmen, it actually happened, and it's like all these articles that started coming out. That's how I first read about it. And it's so sad. It really is so. It's well, so what's sad that it's, you didn't that know like, about it. That we didn't know. We we have nobody's mentioned it. Nobody's done content. I mean, that's so a, a huge indictment well, right there. I think it's it's sad in a bunch of different. Obviously, it's sad because of how it occurred to begin with. That's, it's sad because you know. it occurred right. Like if I, if I if I think of my stages of sadness grief. of yeah. grief, it's sad because of it occurred. Of course, it's sad to me that throughout all of my schooling. Including, like, you know, I've been to school a long time. Even I've been a master's. Like, never this ever came up in any conversation ever in that entire time. Not once. It's sad that even after all that time after school that I've never heard of this. And I think it's both a combination of not being talked about enough. And when it is talked about, maybe being talked about in these silos. And it kind of goes back to how we consume media. Of where unless you're part of that group, then you just don't get included into that conversation. So it never kind of breaks out of the of those little smaller pawns of discussion because I think for the people that were more directly involved, obviously this commission was on 2001, so there was content about this, right, for the last 20 years. I just never never was exposed to it. And and that and it takes, frankly, the, a show, a fictional show about superheroes uh, to be what kind of breaks through and getting this more and more to the general public, at least to folks like myself. And, I, and look, and I like to think that I'm fairly informed about yeah. things. And it's still the case, well, you know. I mean, we have an eye, I think, an eye, an eye and an ear for these kind of stories. And nevertheless, it really didn't, uh, yeah. not a huge thing in the consciousness. That's actually the thing I'm most excited about because I know we have to move on. But um, the thing I'm most excited about is the storytelling potential coming out of this, right? Yeah. We've, we know, obviously, of some video and audio uh, properties that are being, uh, you know, put together right now, actually, that, are, that have stories stemming from Tulsa. Yeah, it's actually a lot of it that is happening now, yeah. And I don't think it has to all be, like, documentary style, here's what went down, but, like, literally the characters, the people, the 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 background, the everything we just talked about I can mean, frankly, itself be Watchmen, interesting content. The series, it's, yeah. it's really good. 
I know, but and I have to, uh, the I whole, swore off HBO uh, Max after I, uh, Wonder Woman, so the, I, well, I, I, you know, I can't, couldn't, can't do it. Remember, it's not TV; it's HBO. Charlie. That's right. But yeah, the series is is actually really, really good, and I think I really love the way that they embedded, they actually anchored the entire series around this event, right? Um, both of how like kind of the history, and I don't want to like spoil it for people, but I really love the way they brought it to life. As a matter of fact, when they when they actually show the event, they show these like planes and people like throwing. Like basically yeah. cocktail bombs into into a house. I mean, it's it's really graphic of of, and they actually show the connection. And of the course, planes were like people that had one in their barn or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's the personal planes. And it, it kind of it's an alternate, kind of, of course, like um, yeah. um, alternate universe. But what's interesting about it is that it even talks about reparation. Right. It talks about people, the government actually going back and finding the descendants of people that were that were injured and that were uh, impacted by this massacre. And then them getting sort of compensated and the amount of friction that creates. And as a matter of fact, it's like a new kind of clan type of organization that pops up because of that. All of these things that you could like, you can see yourself. Yeah, I can see that happening. So it's, it's actually a very well done done show. And what I respect what they did, it's just, it saddens me that that's the way that we end up finding out. Well, or at least I did. Yeah, no, for sure. Me too. Um, and again, more to be told there and more stories coming out. So we're, we're grateful for that. And just a quick replug then of the three movies we've now mentioned. It's amazing. Deep dive with three movie references. Um, the Great Debaters. Then Watchmen. I guess that's a series. It's a series. And, the, the film is good too, but it's a series. And, yeah. and the documentary film Mully, M-U-L-L-Y. All of them recommended, although um, one of them has to live on HBO Max, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Jesus, Courage or Cringe, uh, Changing Gears. we got some fun ones. Uh, we got Wyoming Ranchers. We've got concert promoters in Florida and coffee owner, coffee shop owners in California. We've got, uh, what else do we have? We have a... Uh, insurance company insurance. with AI. Oh, yeah. My favorite topic. The, like, the, the nerd very... in me is, like, geeking out. All right, we're going to punch through these so that we can get, uh, we can we can stay on time for dear listeners. All right, but, so, so uh, first, ahead. Courage or Cringe. Courage or Cringe. Florida concert promoter has a very creative way Way to encourage attendees from you know getting vaccinated, which is offering cheaper concert tickets, right? So, as reported by the Washington Post, earlier this year, Governor Ron DeSantis issued an executive order banning businesses from requiring patrons to prove they have been vaccinated against COVID. Right now, violation of this would mean fines of thousands of dollars for businesses that decide to not follow his order. Right. However, one concert promoter you know, may have come up, or at least he thinks he came up with a very creative workaround, which is they are offering $18 tickets to anyone who is vaccinated and $999.99 tickets, almost a thousand bucks, to everyone else. So you get a 98.5 or 99% <laughs> discount if you've exactly. been vaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, right? Now, Paul Williams, who is the consumer, said, I'm not denying entry to anyone. I'm just offering a discount, right? Now, of course, the governor's office was not happy and said this, that this pricing violates Florida's rules. And in response, the press secretary for the, for the governor's office said, charging higher ticket prices for individuals who do not furnish, uh, furnish uh, proof of vaccination unfairly discriminates against people who have enumerated rights under Florida law. Williams, who's a promoter, said he figured his taxes were safe, in part because he thinks the executive order carries limited penalties, right. which is probably true, right? And that the new law does not go into effect until shortly after his, you know, small punk rock Nice event, timing. Nice timing. You know, planned for June 26th in St. Petersburg, right? But one thing he was not ready for was the response of social. There was there was rage. How can you not be ready for the I response know, of social man. at this like, point? Social is like a... There's always rage. I, you know, I went... I was playing in the sewer and I didn't realize that I got... I was covered in shit. I yeah, like, exactly. 
What are you talking about? How I could you not know? I was shocked that this actually shocked. happened. Shocked. So there were Facebook messages, spam calls, emails, threats. According to Williams, the rage ranged from being vulgar to referring to the Holocaust to repeating... I love vulgar, says a punk band. Love that. Yeah, exactly. Repeating... It was really vulgar. Much criticized comparisons of vaccination requirements to Nazi prosecution and murder of Jews, right? Um, So there's all this kind of pushback, right? These guys went straight into the deep end. Yeah, yeah, which is like always kind of where it ends up. Um, By the way, this, this is tangent, but... I really wish people would stop using the Holocaust as the example of this is just like, no, it's not. Like, there are very few things in this world that could even come it, close it, to it, compare to that. In that ar- in stop that kind using of, that as because you know it really deflates whatever the argument they're making. Of course it, it, it does. It actually undermines it. Well, it's interesting that whenever that gets brought up, it's basically like both sides at this point have lo- have just lost. You know what I mean? One is right. using it, to your point, incorrectly because it diminishes what actually went down. And the other one has gotten to the, like, you're in a conversation where this is actually part of the dialogue. Get out. Even right. if you're right. There, there like, is no- just leave. Just leave. <laughs> It's not that important. <laughs> right, right. This is just like, no, no, stop. What are we going to say next? So we have that. Pull it back, right? We so, have that creative pricing. So you have that creative pricing. So in a complete opposite corner of the world, mm-hmm. or at least in the U.S. I think it's a great, great it's contrast. Right? Great contrast. So in a completely unrelated case, a coffee shop in Northern California said they will fine customers $5 for wearing masks or bragging, air quotes, mm-hmm. about getting vaccinated, Right. Now, the cafe owner previously offered a 50% discount for customers who threw their mask away in front of him, right? Now, Only ca- 50%? Only 50%. Now, the cafe owner said regarding the fine, I don't think $5 to charity is too much to ask for from mask-wearing customers who claim to care so much about the community they live in. <laughs> I, it, I love that quote. Like, it, that's, I, I, I just love the fact that that guy's in California and the concert it, promoters in Florida. It is. I, just, I that's, love that's that. That's great, right? Like, that's, there's so much about this, this story that is hilarious. Um, uh, I love that. But let's stay on task. We're, we're going to keep the courage or cringe to the concert promoter. I just love that other story because you're right. Like the, the extremes is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. So courage or cringe, create a pricing strategy to encourage vaccination or violation of medical privacy and you know, Florida law. Yeah. So you want me to go? Yeah. Uh, it's cringe for me. It's cringe for both, actually, uh, examples. I know we're only doing one, but the but the thing of it is it's cringe for both. I actually thought hard about this because, um, you know, what you're doing, and it, I, I'm looking at both of these examples just to help wrap my head around what I believe about these things. But in example number one, which is the concert promoter, you're using a um, objective criteria, meaning You've a you've had something done, like something has actually happened. You present a certificate, therefore some discount happens. In the second example, you're using an objective criteria too. You're wearing a mask. I can see that. But you're also adding a subjective criteria, right? So you're saying if you're bragging about it, whatever that means, okay? Which, I love that. Which I can interpret in a variety of different ways. Right. So interestingly, the California one is worse it, for it me is worse. Than, the, yeah, yeah. than the than the than the promoter because you're doing the dollar amount is some smaller. It's yeah, tiny, yeah. but but right. you're, but and it's and it seems a little like a goof in a way, but it's still you're you're actually you know doing right. it. But um, but it's worse because you're doing objective and subjective. In the case of the concert promoter, it's only objective, 
And I'm not, by the way, I'm not even really sure if they presented it as it's a thousand dollar ticket to which you get an 80, a 98% discount if you do. I think they just issued two price points. Not that it would change my cringe, but I'm just, I don't think that they marketed it well. The, yeah, I, the, I, I do think, well, read more to the story. I think they actually did it that way, where it's they like did. a discount it's a, price. It's a thousand dollars. A thousand dollar regular price, and there's yeah. a discount price for $18 if for you're eight, vaccinated. For, yeah. for $18 if you're vaccinated. Because it's 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 completely ludicrous that somebody pay a thousand dollars to go see this Yeah, by the way, I didn't, I didn't put it on here, but apparently the concert sold out. Mm-hmm. And all the tickets that are, are eighteen dollars. Like, who yeah. the hell is going to pay a thousand bucks to for this? When well, look, ge- a- genius. Of, so, so I, now I take it back. Great marketing, amazing promotion, <laughs> very marketing. viral. Everybody's talking about it. Good Your show him. sold out. It's like awesome. And all we got was like a you know lawsuit from the right. attorney general or whatever. All we got is vulgar uh, Facebook posts. Yeah, but but again, of course, this to me is um, uh, you know certainly wades into the area of medical privacy. You're not saying like why not have a discount for people that don't have HIV or can prove that they don't or prove that they don't have hepatitis or prove that they don't have the flu or prove that they don't have anything else on a like a technical level it is um, it, you know you're opening a Pandora's box of of medical privacy things which go into all kinds of constitutional issues it's clearly um, not friendly to, to to consumers and you know it's discriminatory on that end so for me it's a cringe but it's not as bad as the California guy because it's objective and right. not right, just right, right, objective right. and so, subjective. Yeah, I, I'll, you just bringing up a really interesting point. I've been thinking about this whole like mm-hmm. proving vaccination. So I'll start with with this. To me, it's cringe. I, I think it's hilarious. I I think yeah, he did funny. exactly what sold out. Yeah, the, the promote. He's a promoter, right? Like his whole thing about being creative to get this thing sold out, and he did exactly mm-hmm. that. He brought national attention to the small rock band, to the small group, got it sold out. Right, good for him. But in terms of the policy that he's putting in place, of course, the massive price difference doesn't, you know, it does end up being, it's a, in order for you to enforce it, you have to violate the the state law that um, that, that Governor DeSantis, you know, issued, the executive order, not the executive order that, that he issued. But whether I agree with his with the executive order or not, doesn't matter. Like, that is what the what the law is, and this in the spirit of it does, does violate that, right? But this whole thing about having to prove vaccination one of the ones that you just brought up, I think is really interesting one because I think about HIV as a good example. And I don't know, I, mean, I, I, I actually thought about researching this and mm-hmm. I just didn't get a chance to. Is it actually legal for someone that has active HIV or AIDS to like have sex with a person consensual sex and not tell them? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. See, the, like, all, it, I don't know the me, legalities like, that's of that. actually... But I will tell you that a lot of this medical privacy stuff re- rests on a very... Uh, on your perspective in terms of interpretation of these privacy laws, right? Because the very, the ridiculous, the, the caricature is, again, caricature A is this only applies to medical practitioners. Therefore, if I'm your doctor and I ask you, hey, Sus, have you been vaccinated in the context of a hospital visit or a medical visit? Clearly, that's not a violation of your privacy. Sure. Any other person asking you is fine. That's 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 basically what the argument is on some in some sectors that I've seen. So if your employer asks you to do it, if you're whatever, that's not a medical practitioner. I don't see doctor in front of his name. Right. So, you know, there's that. The other side of the equation is there is no scenario where anyone can know anything about me unless I volunteer it. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle is reality. Yeah. Okay. And reality is that there's a context for things. And I understand that. But basically having a consumer have to produce a medical certificate in order to have a, 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 a engage in a transaction that has nothing to do with 
you know, the, the medical industry or whatever, it, it to me s- strikes me as out of bounds relative to to. to no, I get that. Yeah. But the reason why I bring up the, the the HIV example is that in that context, I don't know if it's illegal. Yeah, I, I would. I would almost venture to say without, not, once again, you know. Like an <laughs> attempted murder or something. Yeah, like there is like there is some, you knowing that the likelihood of you passing this disease on to that person is pretty high. Sure. And you're not disclosing that, even though it may not, you know, that person may not even know to ask. Or if they ask, you can say, well, that's my private medical, you know, history. Right, but then you could but, go. But hold on. So, mm-hmm. so that to me is really interesting because in the context here. I understand the enforcement is really hard and everything, but what is the? I think the issue that we kind of skirt around this whole conversation is what is the at the end of the day the liability of a of a business having creating a, a dynamic or where individuals could come in potentially sick, not be vaccinated, potentially sick, and they have no way of being able to protect employees and or other customers. You got to imagine that at some point that's going to come back and someone's going to create a lawsuit about this. And I'm sure somebody will. Like in a really tough position it, because of that, right? That kind of thing happens all the time. Somebody with hepatitis is going to a concert. Somebody with a communicable uh, disease. By the way, HIV, yes, of course, is transmitted through the, the sexual act. But remember, it's transmitted through, you know, what if somebody has like a mosh pit and gets bloodied and then, you know, remember when Magic Magic Johnson was playing in the NBA sure, and people yeah, were freaked yeah. out because, you yeah, know, you get cuts yeah. and nicks and whatever. So so that kind of thing is happening, right? And again, there's to me, it rests on our ability to take a reasonable risk as members of a functioning society. Right. But the, but the question... That's what it comes down to. The question here, and once again, what is the social norm that makes sort of the, the thing differently? Is all this happening during an active pandemic? Right. right. I, which, think, I think that's that's the, the issue because we could talk about, well, you could have chicken pox. You could have a lot of these other things that... Yes, they or, or you could saying, have, like, or you could have uh, the Spanish flu before it was right. the, before we had a a thing right. for it, right? so or during the Spanish I just, flu. I find it really interesting. Yeah, it is the whole dynamic, and I just it, this is one that I think will be talked about for a while. But kudos to the, <laughs> to the promoter. Hey, I man, think that the, the, the coffee shop. I kind of would want to just show up to pay the five bucks just to mess with the guy. Yeah, it would be awesome. do both. What happens yeah. if I brag and wear a mask? Does that ten dollars? It wear double mask just to uh, you know be that guy. Yeah, and he, he then like he had this super <laughs> unobjectionable charity he was giving the money to, which was really great too. Oh, I didn't even see that part. Fun, fun stuff. All right, all right, one for one. Courage or cringe? This is a this is a fun for me. Uh, Maybe a little bit uh, just for the, for I, the nerds who li- listen to this may yeah. like this. Everyone else may be like, "What are you talking about?" So, an insurance company insurance company claims to use AI to analyze video of nonverbal cues to determine potential fraud in submitted claims. Right. So, basically, what someone looks like can literally determine whether or not their claim gets approved. Sounds Courage or cringe? Awesome. Right, sounds so, great. As reported, this can't go wrong. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? This is there's so much about this story that I love. As reported by CNN, right? So Lemonade, which is an insurance company that caught the attention of investors to disrupt the industry, you're instantly in a category of company when you pick something that makes no sense to your field to call it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in a class of company that's very venture backed, oh, very sure. DTC. This is, this, is, this is total venture back. Perfect. Company. Lemonade. Perfect. What are we going to call it? Let's call it, you know, um, Seltzer. Perfect. It's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to know there's what the so, second name is. There's so much about this that speaks to what's wrong with 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 many times the venture industry, frankly. Uh, but anyways, let me let me not <laughs> give away too much. So this, uh, they caught the attention of, of investors, right, to disrupt the industry in part because of its use of artificial intelligence, which is now in the middle of a PR controversy because of the same use of, of AI, right? So it now deleted tweets 
the company which I've read, said, they're amazing. I, I can't wait to share. The company a said with you. that the company's AI analyzes the videos that users submit when they file insurance claims for signs of fraud, picking up on nonverbal cues that traditional insurance can't, since they don't use a digital claims process. Right. So they're literally looking at your face as you are going through the process of submitting of, of submitting your claim and analyzing your facial expression, your face, etc. To uh to see whether or not you may be committing fraud. Now of uh, fraud. Now of course this like freaked people out immediately, right? Some Twitters were alarmed. Of course, the company post suggests its customers' insurance claims could be vetted by AI based on unexplained factors picked up from their video recordings, right? And when you think about potential discrimination based on what people look like, it's like you're right in the middle of that. And not right? even what they look like, but how they're how they're how they might be gesturing or gesticulating exactly, or right? whatever. The, the, I have to give you at least a couple of these tweets. Let me just give you one because okay. this is amazing. Replying to some of this stuff, the now deleted thread, right? Yeah. One of the ones that I love. Sorry, but the computer says you must have burnt your own house down since it didn't take kindly to your posture and intonation. There's nothing else we can do. Thank you for being a valued customer. <laughs> I love it. There's more, so I'll wait to I'll yeah, wait to go. Yeah, yeah. But go all ahead, right, finish right. it. So, in a blog post, Lemonade wrote, "Confusion about how the company processes insurance claims caused by its choice of words, um, and I quote, led to a spread of falsehoods and incorrect assumptions." So, writing this to clarify and unequivocally confirm that our users aren't treated differently based on their appearance. Literally, what you said is <laughs> such. This is such based on their appearance, crap. behavior, or any personal or physical characteristic, yeah. which is exactly what literally you were saying, what right? they said. It later clarified that they using that uh, it used nonverbal cues was the wrong choice of words. Rather, it said it meant to refer to its use of facial recognition technology, which it relies on to flag insurance claims that one person submits under more than one identity. Right, claims that are flagged then go on to human reviewers. Right, mm. but you know we've talked about this in this podcast before. But facial recognition itself, uh, that technology is, is highly controversial as the technology has been shown to be less accurate when identifying people of color. As a matter of fact, recently, and actually there was the, uh, the last piece I saw was at the end of last year, and maybe not as recent, the New York Times reported of several black men that have been wrongfully arrested after face, uh, false facial recognition matches, right? Now, there's so much about how they message this, but one of the funniest part about this, this whole story is about AI Jim. Right, so you think what what is AI Jim? Right, yeah. so AI Jim. There's, there's there's AI Jane too, right? Or the, oh, I don't know. So so AI, I, yeah, there's two of them. Okay, so yeah. I, I heard of AI Jim. I didn't see AI Jane. Yeah. Uh, AI Jim, who according to the company's SEC filings, handles the entire claim through resolution in approximately a third of cases, paying the claimant or declining the claim without human intervention. Right, even though they claim the opposite of that also in their defense. Well, like, oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that's what's funny. Then the company came back and clarified, no, 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 AI Jim is actually more of a branded term, right? Meaning not yeah. everything is actually AI. Blame it on the marketing team. What it does, some is actually just automated process. Um, but And they sort of agree that terminology could also be be confusing, right? So this is a case where... Yeah, the truth I, can be confusing. The truth can be case, very confusing. Yeah. So much of this story is gold, right? Like gold. terrible messaging. This is, but but you, but to your point about, I can only imagine the pitch session to to VC firms. They're like, "What lemonade using AI to disrupt the, the industry and having to have humans touch this highly scalable? Love it. We're the, in." The first line from the t- the thread in question, the tweet thread in question that set this whole thing off.
off, Lemonade is built on a digital substrate. We use bots and machine learning to make insurance instant, seamless, and delightful. This puts us at a data advantage. We collect about 100 times more data than traditional insurance carriers. And then it goes on to say, here's why that matters, and it shows this like crazy, you know, convoluted chart with like a brain in the middle. And literally the first comment, this sounds like complete nonsense. <laughs> it was like that's one one user saying that. But but you know that kind of pitch, Charlie. Well, of got course, people super. Excited. Of course, but then they go and double down though. The, the 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 tweet that started to get them in trouble is they're saying this this helps us to lower all this AI helps us to lower our loss ratios. Right, you and mean then you they get def- to pay less people. That's basically. right. In 2017, I guess when the company started, their loss ratio was 368 percent, and in parentheses they wrote "friggin' terrible." Now it's 71 percent, right? And then this guy, another one of the comments is like, um, uh, you, "You know, basically, okay, so you're promoting the fact, right? I forget exactly. I'm, I'll find it in a second, but uh-huh. basically promoting the fact that you pay like the least amount of th- right. of, of claims you possibly can, because that is their metric, and, and like, it is their metric. Yes, that, that, that is, is their metric." That is their metric. Yeah, that is and in that case, no matter what you call it, it's no different than any other insurance company out there sure. trying to pay you the least amount for whatever well, it is ex- that you need. Exactly what it is. And it's I think that the part that sometimes these companies forget is that you're dealing at the end of the day with humans. You have to treat people like humans and treating them like you don't even have to talk to them. Like you have to give them literally the time of day to, you know, make decisions that could have a significant impact on their lives, like insurance claims. Is is what's so like disconnected, man? It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy when I when I think of this. So, by the way, I can make this super easy for me. It's complete cringe on all of it. My favorite part was AI Jim, though. I gotta be honest. Like hearing that name doesn't remind you of like other acronyms that yeah, other tech people ter- like to come it's not, up. It's not even that interesting. AI Jim, like, like you know, like they could have called it Paco or something else. Like it just cracks me up, man. Here's another great quote: "This is truly despicable." Congratulations. I thought health insurance was peak evil. <laughs> It's like <laughs> this is another another thing. Uh, Here's a I mean a serious you know serious tweet from somebody who has autism, and they're like, if you're you know, which of course the company now claims that don't do in terms of nonverbal cues, right? But you know this person, this poor schlub who's writing this stupid social feed, who's definitely not working here anymore. That person, guy or gal, is not making stuff up. They're no, putting they were, in whatever somebody told them. It was probably in the deck that was, it was, that was in given the deck. to investors. And it they took the that and, and turned it into a tweet. And non-verbal people were like, cues. That's You're right. doing what now? You're doing what? And they said, no, no, no. Not va- we're doing facial recognition to make sure that it's not the same person. Right. You mean like a camera? Right. What the hell do you need AI for? Like, I mean, right, oh, you right, know what right. I'm saying? It, it's Sorry, I interrupted <laughs> you, but... but Th- no. This is a great one. That's, this that's, is a, a limited see, series podcast. Now, now, now you like it better, right? See, when I first brought it to you, you weren't as excited about this topic. Yeah. I, too, want to have my entire life surveilled by phrenology robots to decide whether I get an insurance money. <laughs> I mean, th- th- these tweets literally should be a graphic novel. It's uh, it's amazing, the that's comments. That's hilarious. So his views were uh, one for, two for two. Um, I agree 100% you agree with, with you that this one is, of course... Cringe all the so way around. Terrible, but, so but terrible. Even, even cringier than this. I, I can imagine the the uh, just the, the the fire drill that got rung. You know what I mean? <laughs> the guy freaking out. The emails flying back and forth. Then all the investors, of course, because these are talk about yeah. fair weather friends. When all the VCs show up because they're reading this somewhere and they're going, "What the?" You know, 
just the of course the 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 thunderstorm of hammers that the fell same down on thing these people. That they were so excited about. Oh, for sure. Now for they're sure. like, oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah we're distancing ourselves with this, and we're about uh, people. We're gonna di- divest our position in uh, lemonade. Uh, we really care about people. No, you don't. No, you don't. You want to get, <laughs> but there is so much. It's so worth. We, we're gonna put it in the show notes, Jesus, the Wayback Machine, so you can see the actual tweet thread. <laughs> It's gold. <laughs> it is gold. Yeah, yeah. It's so rich That's, with yeah, just. I didn't see. I'm, I'm just pointing out. I didn't actually take the time. You've to got the, the combination of VC jargon, right? Marketing nonsense, and then the the comedic gems and gold of the people who are actually commenting on this. So that's the threefold reason to go and look at this. It is an exercise in absolute stupidity. It's literally it's it's it's, its own uh, time capsule. We should literally preserve this uh, tweet thread in buried in the ground. <laughs> look at it a thousand years from now when civilization is gone. We'll know the reason why. And here it is. Wow, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you ended up coming around on this on this topic. You, I did. You were you were a little bit skeptical at the beginning when I wrote about stuff. I did. I did. I did. All right. All right. Uh, our last topic on courage or cringe. Female Wyoming rancher sues Biden for race discrimination. Wow. Yeah. It's on. So, as reported by the Tri-State Livestock News, which, by the way, I think we should have a segment every week about the Tri-State Livestock News. I don't think in any of the it's content, I think I've ever referred to it, but I was pretty excited. where all the ranchers get their, yeah, uh, their daily apparently. fix. So, We're all know, about local media. Kudos, kudos to them. That's awesome. So, Lazel Car- Carpenter. A I think wine- it's Liesel, probably. Liesel? Yeah, it's, Liesel? I've, I've heard that name before. It's a ah, German name. Yeah, Liesel. Oh, okay. Liesel mm-hmm. Carpenter, mm-hmm. a Wyoming rancher who is white announced that she is suing the Biden administration and the Department of Agriculture for race discrimination. Now, this is in response to the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which was signed by the, by the Biden administration in March, right, earlier this year. Now, the plan included the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act, which provides $4 billion in debt forgiveness to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers who've been taken out of, uh, who have taken out farm services agency loans, right? Now, how they the first thing that I had a question is like, well, how do you de- define what socially disadvantaged means, right? Now they so what they did is they actually used the definition that the USDA, right, the the U.S. Department of Agriculture, basically how they define it as including African Americans, uh, American Indian, Asian American, Latino farmers and ranchers. Also, by the way, in 2014, that f- the Farm Bill expanded the program to also serve returning military veterans to engage in agriculture. So that that's also part of the group that is considered socially disadvantaged, right? Uh, also, what they're looking to correct is, and by the way, so this this emergency relief of farmers for farmers of color act. What they're looking to correct is that is the systematic discrimination in terms of loans that were given out to many of those individuals, forcing them to get either higher interest loans or not getting finance at all, which in part led to a large drop off in ownership of people of color within the farming. Right. So, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, in 1920, 14% of of farm operators were black. By 2012, the number had dropped to less than 2%, right? It's a pretty pretty massive drop. I didn't actually see what, for any of the other groups what, what it was, but obviously it's a pretty significant drop. Now, there was even, a, by the way, a class action lawsuit, uh, Pickford versus Glickman, where black farmers sued the USDA for discriminatory practices and actually won, right? However, right, by definition, white ranchers are excluded, right, which includes this woman that is, that is not suing, which according to the suit and is in violation to the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the Fifth Amendment. So according to the general counsel for, for this woman, uh, William uh, Trenchman, he said, like a lot of farmers and ranchers, a client has struggled to keep her family ranch afloat through all the difficulties of the COVID-19 pandemic, only to learn that she is ineligible to even apply for Biden's loan forgiveness program solely due to her race. 
Instead of being rescued by Biden's plan, she's been excluded and discriminated against for no other reason than the color of her skin. So, you know, there's not that much more to this story. I mean, this is kind of, so is this a case of two wrongs don't make a right? Or is this a case of a targeted governmental policy crafted to address historical wrongs now being challenged by those who wish to take advantage of them? The thing that's interesting about this, I know we just talked about the woman in Wyoming, but in doing research on it, apparently there's a number of lawsuits in a bunch of different states. And there's actually already been a ruling in one of them that went to the federal, um, whatever the district is that Texas is in. I don't know what what district that is, but you know how they have like 9th district and 12th district and all that stuff. Uh So there's one that just actually got adjudicated. Oh, I want to see this. Um, uh-huh. On May 18th, uh, federal judge Reed O'Connor determined he's the, that the person bringing the lawsuit uh, is likely to succeed at trial and ordered the SBA, the Small Business Administration, to halt its practices and consider Greer, this is another person, consider that person's application immediately. The judge pointed out the obvious, that the fund's $29 billion would likely be distributed before this particular person had made it to the front of the line, so so apparently this just this just went down like you know uh, is, a couple is the of weeks tied ago. to the emergency relief for pharmacy. It's, it's basically the same case. Um, it's just a different one. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, I could you could totally see that this is not going to be an isolated incident. It right? for sure isn't. Apparently, there's there's cases in something like a dozen states on the basis of what I read. Um, the, there's a quote that I that I like from uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, and something like it's maybe a paraphrase, but he says the way the, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And right. I think to me this is kind of one of those because the reality of it is is that in this case this money, whether it was done innocently or it was done intentionally, is excluding an entire class of people simply because of an immutable characteristic, and it's the difference between. You know, kind of how you can have the affirmative action laws where they they maybe prioritize certain things in a way, but they mm-hmm. don't actually, you can't actually say to somebody, I'm not hiring there's you there's no scenario where you... Correct, write. correct. I think this one is going to end up in that particular category. Um, and, uh, you know, from what everything that I've read, and again, talk about a disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, from what I read is there's some pretty decent firm uh, footing here in terms of uh, equal protection clause of the Constitution, guaranteeing people just the equal treatment regardless of race, especially where federal things are are, are, are the ones being uh, discussed that apply to, like, you know, the entire country. So for me, this one's a cringe, um, at least as it stands and as the way I understand it. If somebody's being excluded because of their race, I think that's a clear violation of the of the amendment in question here, and it is a violation of people's equal protection under the law. Yeah, so no, that's very fair. I think this it's hard for me to make an argument that that to disagree with you in this case because um, I'm, I'm kind of with you, right? At the end of the day, no matter how you look at it, you know, people are going to be excluded solely because of their race, right? And that's uh, I think a tough one to sort of see how that legally can work, right? So even if you like the the sniff, this, to me, this doesn't pass the sniff test. What, what I found most interesting, though, by the way, so I'm cringe, so I'll start with that immediately. I'm cringe. What I did think about, though, in this specific topic, and this may just love to actually discuss with you, which is, but how do you then look at it trying to address these wrongs that have been many times, going back to the when we started with the whole Tulsa conversation, that have been actually facilitated by the government, right? Because that's really what we're talking about here, right? The reason why there was a class action lawsuit, the reason why you even have this relief fund for farmers of color is because... Over time, the government has played an active role in creating a dynamics that calls for less farmers of color to remain in that industry, to get Mm -hmm. pushed out because of not having access to loans, et cetera. So how do you go about addressing those and making it somewhat targeted 
without creating this, once again, another case of racism and racial discrimination by doing so. So that's a part that I do think is super tricky it because I, I, under- I understand the thought of what they're trying to do. Yeah. I have a thought about it as well, but like I think that to me, that's what this, that's why I found this, this, this topic really interesting. A, because I, I almost think like, well, why did you guys, like, really, you didn't think Domo's going to bring this up? I, I didn't, I frankly didn't know this had even had occurred until this, this topic came up. But I'm a little surprised that they would think that this is going to go unchallenged. How someone immediately look at this like, well, wait, wait, the sole re- way you're looking at this is if if you're if you're not within these groups, then you're not included at all. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And you no, know, I totally I get it. Actually, but, by the mm-hmm. way, I, I would argue like, wouldn't women be part of that? Like, how many women actually? Well, it's funny because own, in, like you know, it, our farmers like that's well in the piece that I see what I'm saying. Like that uh, would be of course, really of course in the piece that I read. There was a a, a Midwest farmer who was white who was, um, I guess, a paraplegic or no, an, an amputee. He had lost both of his legs uh-huh. and he had a 200 acre farm and had like dozens of cattle and like was going out there doing all this stuff. And his whole point was like, clearly nobody's looking in terms of disadvantage of like the handicapped, right? So I think to answer your question, I, my thought on this is, and I'll start it in an unrelated way perhaps, but one time you told me that we're talking about Joe Rogan as an example. And you mm-hmm. said, I love Joe Rogan and I hate Joe Rogan. Okay. That's how I feel about Home Depot. Okay. <laughs> I love Home Depot because it's got everything that I need when I'm doing a weekend project. And I hate Home Depot because I go there more than any other store in the world combined because I always go there and I think I know what I need. I come home and it's the wrong thing. What that has taught me is the importance of having the right tool for the right job. The federal government is not the right tool, in my opinion, for every fix. And the challenge here is that I view it a lot like reparations, the whole conversation we had about reparations. I agree. We talk about Bruce Speech works. We talked about what happened in Illinois. I'm okay with that. We talk about the federal government getting involved in the reparation debate. That starts to get very wonky. And I think the same here. I don't think that the federal government should be trying to find, come up with a, one, a, a solve to address this situation that you're referring to. I think that that is a more local and state-driven thing because that's how it can work better, right? So in this case, what the federal government's, like in reparations, I think the federal government's role is to enable the, conver- to create the space to have the conversation so that we can actually do things right on a local level. In this case, similarly, I think the federal government's role is to make sure that everybody has equal protection under the law and nobody's being discriminated by the color of their skin. Now let's go a double click. What should Wyoming do about these Wyoming uh, maybe black ranchers or minority of people who are, you know, who are who are disadvantaged in their neighborhood. Let's have that be dealt with at that level in a different way, but not one that disadvantages people uh, across the board um, in their kind of primary or basic rights. But don't you think that all that does is just push the level of responsibility down one level, but it doesn't actually help solve the problem? Because like you can make that. We just talked about Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Literally took almost a hundred years for them to actually come to light and to people to even get recognized. Obviously, the state of Oklahoma did not care. Mm-hmm. They didn't care enough to do anything about it. By the way, there's never been any talks of reparations for all the people that lost their wealth and people that died to this day. Like, there's nothing and solving that, that, that is going that, on there, you're making right? my point. Solving that should not be people in D.C. Solving that should be in Oklahoma. I, I, I get that. But my point is, at least up to right now, 100 years later, there doesn't seem to be any kind of interest from the city of Tulsa or from the state of Oklahoma to want to care at all and address this like really big wrong that happens. As a matter of fact, 
what you can really point to is they wanted to erase this whole thing, pretend like it never happened. That's really what, what you could point but what to. There's brought, more history of that happening correct. than but what any brought, actual fix. But what brought that to life, based on the story, is somebody coming from another state who wanted to do a story about it and brought the whole thing to life. It wasn't somebody passing, you know, uh, Senate Bill 248. Like, that wasn't what brought this thing to life and, 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 and gave it the potential for being fixed. Y- yeah, yeah, but it still, it still doesn't actually address the, the question I'm asking, which is, which is, yeah, keeping it, I, I don't disagree with letting the mm-hmm. state figure it out. Let the city figure it out. Let the county figure it out. That's fine. But when there is no interest of either county, city, state to do anything about it, then what? Of course. Then you need, well, if there's an absent law or an unjust law, it needs to be challenged at the broadest level where it applies. So if a, if a law is unjust or if a new law is required, it needs to be instituted at the broadest level where it applies. If it already exists, as is the case here, then applications or whatever, permutations or different things do not need to reside at that level. It should reside at a different level, in my opinion. I think that things are more effective when they're closer to the issue. That's just what I think. So to look for for a federal solve for this or or an answer to this, I don't. I, I, I think that's the wrong tool for the job. That's, no, that's I, my, I get that's it, my but guess. Fine. But, but let's say that this is at a, at a, at a state level. It'll still mm-hmm. be a problem. Sure. Take the exact same policy at a state level. It is the exact same problem. So look, because but, it still yeah. discriminates people that are not from that race. So okay, so make it a city level. Right. It doesn't but your, matter. But, but like your the, question was, how do we then benefit the the law in its most benign state, or the bill when it was passed was intended to to prioritize or give some additional benefit to people who've been historically disadvantaged. Correct. That was the that was the goal. Okay. Mm-hmm. What it's doing now, and it may be doing that. What it's also doing in practice is it's discriminating against people for something they can't you. fix. Okay, uh, agree with. Great. You. So then, how do we get at the 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 first part, which is how do we make it better for people who come from historically disadvantaged groups in this particular area? That's the question to to, to answer. Sure. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe an approach making it up. It require a great brainstorm. I don't know. In Wyoming, maybe there is a whole lot of money that needs to get injected into creating amazing storytelling, targeting black the, the black community to tell the stories of why you want to be a black rancher and all the injustices. I, I have no idea. I'm making it up. But maybe there is an infrastructure thing. Maybe there is an educational piece to it. Maybe there is um, maybe there is a reparations piece to it. Hey, your your family, just like the Bruce Speech thing. Actually, their farmland was taken when they were trying to get started. And now as a result, you never got a chance to be a rancher. We're going to fix that. We're going to give you this plot of land back in Oklahoma that actually belonged to you originally. That I don't I don't know if that is it, but that's a hell of a lot closer to me than some bill introduced by somebody randomly somewhere else. Yeah, but I think your argument, frankly, in my mind, it's 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 okay, but all it does is just shifts responsibility closer to where where it happened and gives more variability. So it could be treated different ways in different states. That's fine. But but nothing actually, in my mind, actually addresses the actual problem is that you are creating this dynamic where people get excluded. I actually think the best way to think about this is not to think about race at all. It's to, like, the best, the most effective pro- programs, in my mind, are those that affect by social class or status or income that, in these cases, end up benefiting most of the time significantly more diverse people without excluding anyone that is not diverse. Because the issue here is, like, well, let's look at the ranchers who have been most impacted, who have the less access, who maybe are independent, who are not tied to this big conglomerate, and what we can do about helping them out. And I bet if you do that, you're probably going to find that the majority of people that get impacted by that are going to be more diverse than not without having to discriminate anyone else that doesn't squarely fall within that category. I think something like that to me is much better, whether that comes from federal or from the state. I think from the state, to your point, is better because you're probably going to account for more local dynamics 
of what be maybe more unique there, but I, I think that's a I better think, approach. I to, think to that's much that. better. That's much better than just doing nothing at the federal level. the The downside of of that approach to me is a long term downside, and that is like the families that we work with in our nonprofit of generational homelessness, generational welfare, generational dependence on on you know the the federal government. We've seen that. I have lived that. I've experienced it. And so, in a world where now we're going to just we're going to say, hey, we're going to give it to the lower income folks because we assume that's where most of our people are, then I don't know if long term, I'm not saying this is near term, near term, I think it works. Long term, does that tell people, oh, don't leave this level, because if you leave this level, you're not going to get any of the uh, of the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that. But I think the, the what we're talking about here is support for people that are farmers, right, in terms of how they can be able to support their business and continue being yeah. farmers, because yeah. you do have this massive exodus Going from 14% down to 2%, and that was in 2012. I mean, I who knows what yeah, the status is it's now. A big, it's a big huge, drop. huge drop. Yeah. Basically, you've, to some extent, people have been pushed out of, of this whole industry. And the question is, like, are we better off by having a little better representation in those industries or not? Yeah. Right? I think the, the dynamic that's not included on here that I just didn't have is, like, to what degree do you still have independent farmers versus those that are just part of a big conglomerate, right? That's also, I think, a big part of the issue. Right, and I think, I'm sure that's like a huge contributing factor. I don't but, know the answer to that, but if it's anything like uh, industry farming, the trend has got to be toward the cor- the, the corporation rather than the or even retail. Right, think about the role that Walmart and Target oh, and all sure. those guys play versus like your mom and pop, you know, shops. Walmart's like the biggest grocery provider, though, yeah. like in the in the country. We kind of think we forget about that, but yeah. um, anyway, okay, well. Jesus, you get another uh, mug, I think. So we, yeah, we're we're fuzzy sweater, cr- cringy across the the board, cringe across the board, and, and uh, agreement across the board. So I, I don't like it. I kind of want to go back and change one of them at least to feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think in typical fashion, for different reasons, um, we arrived. Not that different some... this time, actually. We're, actually we're, yeah. we're a lot closer this time than than a lot of times. Well, um, it's all right. It's an aberration, but that's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. Anything else, Jesus? No, we're good. All right. So. Folks, remember to subscribe. Go to patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. Lots of fun episodes coming up. We'll see you again next week on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza, and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.